You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Philip Coggan, the Bartleby columnist. Coming up on today's show. Italy looks for new ways to tackle its debt. The government does have about 130% of GDP worth of euro-denominated debt that then it might struggle to start paying back because all of its revenues would be in this depreciated parallel currency. And how a kind of temp work known as ghost work could change employment forever. We're really describing the reorganisation, arguably the dismantlement of full-time employment itself. First, the trade war between the US and China is ratcheting up after the Trump administration imposed new sanctions that bar American companies from dealing with five more Chinese entities. The Trump administration says developments in the Chinese supercomputer industry pose a threat to American national security. This move adds pressure to the already high tensions before President Trump and President Xi Jinping meet in Japan. Stephanie Studer is The Economist's senior China business correspondent. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Phil. So what's the significance of these particular five companies that America has placed sanctions upon? They're pretty obscure names, but what joins them together is that they all do things related to supercomputers. Four are companies and one is an institute, and some of them build the supercomputers and some of them make the chips that go into them. And supercomputers now can do all manner of things from modelling ocean currents to simulating nuclear explosions and searching for ore reserves. So these really matter a lot in terms of both national prestige for America and China and other leaders in the sector, as well as technological advances. And are they threatened in the same way that Huawei has been threatened by American sanctions or are they operating in a different kind of market? They could be affected. So Huawei was hit with the same ban in May. So also placed on this list that bans the export of American technology to it and lots of its affiliates. And it has admitted itself that despite having planned for such an attack on its supply chain for some years, it's going to hurt. I think in the case of the supercomputers, China still relies on American companies for technology, but it has been pushing ahead in the last last decade to create its own chips in particular. And there have been some interesting joint ventures with American companies to license those chips so that Chinese companies can essentially create a copy of them. So most experts think that it may be able to weather this storm. The Pentagon seems to be particularly concerned about these companies. Why? Yes, so the so-called entity list on which these companies have been placed is basically identifying those for which there is reasonable cause to believe that they have been involved in or could pose a risk of being involved in activities that go against America's national security or its foreign policy interests. And these Chinese supercomputer companies are building machines that certainly in 2015 at least, when a similar ban came down, was found to be involved in modelling nuclear blasts. And so under the Obama administration, they decided to cut off its supply of Intel chips for that reason. And what has China said so far? Is it planning retaliation? Well, interestingly, Chinese responses to Donald Trump's ratcheting of tariffs have been relatively measured. 
But when it comes to attacking national champions, I think the gloves come off and you can see from the rhetoric and tone of state media how deeply irritated China becomes. I think that after the ZTE precedent, which is a Chinese state-owned telecoms giant that was basically crippled by a similar ban, Donald Trump decided to offer a reprieve after a personal appeal from President Xi and lifted this sanction so that ZTE could survive. And so now, of course, I think the Chinese are wondering, is this going to be another bargaining chip or not? And that will be top of mind as President Trump and President Xi meet at the G20 at the end of this week. And are Chinese hopes high that something will come out of this conversation to get rid of the tariffs or reduce the tensions? I think they're certainly hoping so. We've just heard that dialogue has resumed between the two countries in the run-up to the G20. Certainly, China wants to cool things. I think now with the blacklisting of these five companies, the timing certainly makes it look like America has yet another lever to pull. And China has in turn threatened that it's drawing up its own list of what it calls unreliable entities, American ones, to blacklist. And of course, those that have cut supplies to both Huawei and to these five latest supercomputer companies are obvious candidates. And finally, Stephanie, do you see any end in sight to these uh, tit-for-tat battles? Can you envisage the outline of some kind of mutually agreed deal? I think in terms of the technology Cold War, as more watchers are calling it, It's hard to see how we come down from this. The tariffs, I think, are easier to clear up. The technological battle has become somewhat blurred. We're not sure if President Trump is concerned about the commercial implications of the rivalry of leading Chinese technology companies, or if the administration is concerned about China's technological supremacy. I think as more and more of these orders come down banning Chinese companies, it will start to look a lot like America trying to suppress China's rise in technologies in which it has a lead. And I think that's certainly how China's already seeing it. So I think even if the tariff war may abate or may be put on hold and a truce is reached, there's no end in sight to the tech war. Stephanie, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read more on this story in this week's Economist. You can take out a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, mini-bots. They're not small robots. They're not Twitter trolls in Russia. They're a type of debt. And there are concerns that this new form of debt will damage Italy's economy and could be the first step towards Italy rejecting the euro. Rachna Schambog is the European economics correspondent at The Economist. Hello, Rachna. Hi, Phil. So why is Italy's government going to issue mini-bots? Italy's government isn't yet going to issue mini-bots. They are mentioned in the government's coalition contract, which came out last year. And the lower house of parliament accidentally passed a motion saying the government should study mini-bots. The reason why the government or certain economists affiliated with the Northern League, which is one of the ruling parties in the coalition, are keen on the idea is because they think it's a clever way to pay off some of the government's commercial debt to its suppliers and might help to circumvent the EU's fiscal rules. And how would a mini-bot work? Let's spell it all out. They would be low-denomination bonds. 
Low denomination means? Less than 500 euros. They look suspiciously like banknotes, the sort of early proposals for them. And the government would pay a contractor, let's say, in these bonds. And the contractor could then use them to pay off their tax payments or to pay for other public services. And the creators hope that it becomes more widely used and perhaps there's a market that develops in them and perhaps even eventually some prices in shops become priced in these mini-bots. Now, this kind of new form of money has been used by countries in the past, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It wouldn't be legal tender, so it wouldn't technically be money because you wouldn't be obliged to accept these mini-bots. You could insist on euros instead. But often countries in financial distress end up issuing these sorts of IOUs. For example, California in 2009, during the time of the financial crisis, started issuing IOUs to public suppliers. Argentina in 2001, 2002, I think, started issuing these sorts of things to pay um, public sector salaries. So there have been instances of these things being issued. They're not always very successful because the value of these sorts of IOUs starts decreasing. You know, there's no reason why banks should accept them and convert them into cash. And sometimes the supply of these things rests in the hands of governments. So uh, there's a temptation to issue more and more of them. And you think back all the way to revolutionary France where they had assignats and they issued tons of them and they got hyperinflation. So as you say, the danger is Italy issues a lot of and then we might end up, might we not, with a kind of parallel currency. So the mini bot trading at one value and a euro at another. That's right. Meanwhile, the government does have about 130% of GDP worth of euro-denominated debt that then it might struggle to start paying back because all of its revenues would be in this depreciated parallel currency. So why are they doing it? They're not in that kind of crisis, are they, that California saw or revolutionary France saw for that matter? No, absolutely not. The suspicion and perhaps the fear of some investors, maybe even of the European Commission, is that they might want to leave the euro. At least the creators of this mini-bot proposal, they're eurosceptic economists, they've not made any secret of the fact that they regard mini-bots as being kind of off-ramp from the euro and a way to setting up another currency. That's sort of a lingering fear and that might be why the Italian government's borrowing costs have increased since this government came into office. I should say that the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, who are both technocrats, have said that they have no intention of introducing mini-bots. But Matteo Salvini, who's the leader of the Northern League and one of the Deputy Prime Ministers, says that they're still on the table and he would press ahead with them if he saw no other option. And I suspect he views it as part of his negotiating strategy with the European Commission over Italy's public finances in the hope that Brussels will allow him to, to push ahead with tax cuts. So it's almost a Trump-like threat to do something outrageous and hope that the other side will give way. That's right. But if they did go ahead with it, Italy risks being hurt the most from doing this, especially if investors start to think that it's a first step towards a parallel currency. That would be very dangerous. And you would perhaps start seeing borrowing costs rising and maybe even Italian residents deciding to hold on to euros. And have Italian businesses said much about this? I think for now, nobody really thinks it's going to happen. People are sort of placing more weight on what the, the finance minister and the prime minister are coming out and saying. So let's see if the bots actually start to function. Ratchana, thanks very much. Thanks, Bill. Finally, I'm sitting here in the studio at The Economist offices today, but I'd much rather be working at home. Or would I? 
A lot of people do work at home now as temporary contract workers for big tech companies. It's called ghost work, and there are pros and cons. More flexibility, but fewer rights. Could this type of work really spell the end of traditional employment? I spoke to Mary Gray, co-author of Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass, and asked her to define what she means by ghost work. My co-author Sadarsari and I actually came up with the term ghost work to describe a growing world of information service temp jobs that are invisible to most consumers. A host of companies pay people to improve customers' web search queries, spam filters, to caption and translate materials, and do data labeling and data entry that's used to develop artificial intelligence. People are also increasingly paid to perform tasks like content review and moderation and provide text-based customer service support to basically fill in where artificial intelligence fails or really can't come close to filling in for a human. We're really describing the reorganization, arguably the dismantlement of full-time employment itself. So any project or task that can be at least in part sourced, scheduled, managed, shipped, and build through a web platform can now be performed by people on contract anywhere they can access the internet to pick up the work. And this is pushing workers into ghost work conditions that are arguably harbingers of a future of work that is far more likely than robots fully taking over our day jobs. And how many people roughly in total are employed in this kind of work? We don't know. There isn't a global Bureau of Labor Statistics that can help us get a bead on how many people do this work. By our estimates, we're looking at platforms that may employ or regularly have participation from workers in the tens of thousands for each platform. And at this point, there are hundreds of platforms. Mary, who are the winners and losers when it comes to ghost work? I'd say the only real winners in this new world of work are the platforms brokering the deals between companies that depend on on-demand workers. Firms that need workers on the spot, they lose because the platforms are worried about being classified as employers of records. So they often fail to properly vet, train, or manage the workforce that they're making available to these businesses. And the workers certainly lose because they are left to fend for themselves and have no market power. We argue in the book that it doesn't have to be this way. It's really earliest days of thinking about designing this market. So there's a lot of possibility that workers and firms could be the real winners and platforms could certainly get their fair share of this new world of work. When I was reading the book, it brought to mind the putting out system that the textile industry used to depend upon where weaving was put out to households and they earned a piece rate for doing it. Is it the similar sort of worker that gets involved, people who aren't doing this full time but are doing it to earn some extra income for the family? There is a real distribution of who's coming to do this work precisely because of the way it's organized. It's an open call. This is not an environment where an employer is hiring an employee and retaining them. You just have an open call. It means you've got a group of people who will really dedicate themselves to doing this kind of work. We call them always on, and they've effectively turned this into full-time work. But then there's a group of people, about 20 to 30% across all the platforms, who end up picking a kind of task that they do routinely. We call them regulars. And then a long tail of people who are trying things out. And there's really no way to identify the full-time or part-time worker here precisely because people are moving across those categories depending on their own interests and needs. So they're trading that freedom uh, against 
not that high pay, right? And very limited workers' rights. So definitely no workers' rights here. This is a world of work that we have yet to collectively socially define as a particular classification of work. The employer of record could be the person who hailed the ride and the person who is perhaps picking them up. The same mechanism is delivering information services. In terms of pay, that's the hardest part. For workers who figure out how to reduce their cost, most importantly, the workers who can connect with other workers and form peer groups, they actually can make this form of employment work for them precisely because it's meeting this need of not having to be under someone else's schedule. They've done the calculus. If they spent the time commuting, the cost in childcare, if they were required to work somebody else's nine to five schedule, they wouldn't be able to participate as fully in the economy. And you mentioned a key point there. They've started to organize themselves in online forums. And you suggest towards the end of the book that they might organize themselves even more. How would they do that? It's quite profound that even in this early stage, people are creating their own standalone sites, their own subreddits or web forums. And they are using those to effectively share tips and tactics. So we could imagine a world in which if we had a real recognition of this as a form of employment, being able to see municipalities that provide co-working space, other opportunities and resources so that workers themselves were able to use the kinds of facilities that we tend to think of underwriting growing small businesses as a resource for what could effectively be the new collectives or guilds of the next century. So it's ghost workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose. Exactly. Mary Gray, co-author of Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Philip Coggan, the Bartleby columnist. In London, this is The Economist.